MSW Media. News with swearing. Daily beans, daily beans. Daily beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Friday, October 30th, 2020. Today, Kavanaugh corrects his concurrence after a complaint from Vermont. Tucker Carlson makes one of the most ridiculous allegations I've ever heard. A shift in U.S. policy allows U.S. tax dollars to be spent in the West Bank and East Jerusalem for the first time since the 1970s. The Supreme Court will not expedite the latest GOP complaint about counting votes in Pennsylvania. The Economist has endorsed Joe Biden. Falwell Jr. is suing Liberty University, blaming them for his ruined reputation. And the New York Times drops an incredible story on the Hulk Bank indictments and just how much influence Erdogan has over Trump. I'm your host, A.G. Happy Friday, everyone. Today, uh, you know, as we do on every Friday, I'll be reading the good news with Amy Carrero. And later I get to speak with Danny Berzhovsky. She's the Democrat running for Illinois 16th District. She'll be joining us for the Flip It Blue segment. And I'll also be talking to the host of Deep State Radio and the author of Traitor. His new book is uh, out, David Rothkopf. And I get to speak to him. The the book is called Traitor. It's really good. Traitor, uh, the history of American betrayal from Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump. So that's going to be a really good conversation. Our live stream happy hour is today at 4 Pacific time, and it's for patrons only now due to we've had some crashes uh, from the public. And to become a patron for as little as 3 bucks a month, just head to patreon.com slash MullerSheWrote, or you can join on Supercast at dailybeans.supercast.tech. Thanks to our patrons who have donated over 500 one-year memberships to those in need. You can buy memberships for those who can't swing it at dailybeanspod.com. Just scroll down on the bottom of the main page, and that's also where you can sign up to receive a free one-year membership. So we have a lot of news to get to, so let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. The lead story today comes out of the New York Times, and it focuses on something we've been talking about since episode one in the kitchen days of Mueller, she wrote. And that's the influence of Erdogan and that, you know, that he has over Trump in this administration. They tell the story of Berman. That's the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, traveling to D.C. in 2019 to have a chat with Bill Barr about his criminal investigation into Halk Bank. That's a Turkish-owned state bank for violating U.S. sanctions laws by funneling billions in gold and cash to Iran. For months, Erdogan had been pushing Trump to let him and his family and his state-owned bank off the hook. And because Trump has no spine, it seems like he went for it, because Barr presented Berman with a sweetheart settlement deal that stunned Berman. Barr pressed Berman to allow the bank to avoid an indictment by paying a fine and acknowledging some wrongdoing. In addition, the Justice Department would agree to end investigations and criminal cases involving Turkish, the Turkish bank and bank officials who were allied with Mr. Erdogan and suspected of participating in the sanctions-busting scheme. And Berman wasn't having it. Uh, while the bank has a right to propose a settlement, Berman was investigating key individuals, some with ties to Erdogan, for a scheme he believes was helping fund Iran's nuclear weapons program. Berman would later tell lawyers, this is completely wrong. You don't get to grant immunity to individuals unless you're getting something from them. And we wouldn't be here. So anyway, six months earlier, let's rewind to six months earlier. Matthew fucking Whitaker, who was the acting AG, rejected a request from Berman to file criminal charges against the bank. Big Dick Toilet Wine, as we call him, blocked those charges after several phone calls between Trump and Erdogan in November and December of 2018. 
Quote, the president was discussing an active criminal case with the authoritarian leader of a nation in which Mr. Trump does business. He reported receiving at least $2.6 million in net income from operations in Turkey from 2015 through 2018. And that's according to tax records obtained by The New York Times. And Trump's response here is particularly fucked up in light of his tough talk on Iran and his policy of economically isolating them. That was that's his Middle East plan. And in the case of Hawk Bank, it was only after an intense foreign policy clash between Trump and Erdogan over Syria last fall that the United States would proceed into lodging charges against the bank, though not against any individuals. Yet the administration's bitterness over Mr. Berman's unwillingness to go along with Mr. Barr's proposal would linger and ultimately contribute to Mr. Berman's dismissal. Uh, but the influence over Trump goes way beyond just a few phone calls, right? It's been in the works since before Trump won the election. One is in quotes here uh, in my script. <laughs> and uh, this includes folks like Rudy Giuliani, Mike Flynn, and Brian Ballard, a lobbyist for Trump, to name a few. Turkish government officials lobbied Steve Mnuchin and Trump. Uh, Steve and Trump pressed the Justice Department not to make the fine against Hulk Bank too big because they said Turkey couldn't afford it, the bank couldn't afford it. Back in 2016, Erdogan spoke to the vice president, Biden, at the time, and told him that the investigation of Hulk Bank was a giant conspiracy theory cooked up by Gulen. Remember Gulen? He's the Muslim cleric. Erdogan offered Flynn $15 million to kidnap and extradite back to Turkey and paid Flynn and Bijan Kian to write op-eds and lobby against him. That's why Bijan Kian was uh, charged with violating Farah. And... Flynn would have been, too, had he not cooperated, but he's now trying to withdraw that guilty plea. Mr. Erdogan asked Mr. Biden to remove Preet Bharara, then U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. <laughs> Hi, Kitty. Come here. <laughs> Sorry about that. Podcat wanted to say hello. Uh, anyway, he asked Biden to, to fire Preet. Um, again, that was a U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. That office was in the early stages of an investigation into Hulk Bank. And had already indicted a Turkish-Iranian gold trader, Reza Zarab, for helping to orchestrate the sanctions evasion scheme. Mr. Erdogan also wanted the Obama administration to remove the judge overseeing Mr. Zarab's case in Manhattan. And Biden, this is according to a Biden aide, and he wanted Mr. Zarab released and allowed to return to Turkey. According to Biden's aide's account, uh, Mr. Erdogan said if the United States really meant what it said about repairing relations, the case needed to go away. Speaking to reporters before he left Turkey, Biden made clear there were limits to what the United States could or should do to address Mr. Erdogan's request, including any effort to extradite Mr. Gulen. Quote, if the president were to take this into his own hands, what would happen would be he would be impeached for violating the separation of powers. And Mr. Biden said that with Erdogan at his side. And the Turkish president didn't give up, though. He again raised Hulk Bank with Biden during a visit to New York of, uh, for the U.N. General Assembly, and then twice in phone calls with Barack Obama in the weeks before he left office in January 2017. Uh, Preet said he never heard a peep from the Obama White House about Hulk, but the Hulk Bank investigation, but all that changed when Trump took office. The New York Times takes a moment here in the story to remind us that Trump helped build Trump Tower Istanbul and Erdogan was at the ribbon cutting in 2012. So once Trump took office, shit started happening. His National Security Council contacted the Department of Education to block congressionally appropriated funding to a network of charter schools linked to Gulen. Department officials at education said no, because that would be fucking illegal. The White House asked the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security to investigate Gulen to try to look for ways to get him out of the United States. Talk about fishing expeditions. The FBI and Department of Homeland Security weren't too keen on that. Then Hulk Bank and Turkey paid Ballard's lobbying firm $4.6 million over two years for work on Hulk Bank. Ballard's argument 
was that Turkey's cool. They're with NATO. And the bank thing is totally a foreign policy issue. It shouldn't be criminal. That was what he got $4.6 million to push. In early 2018, it had led to the indictments of uh, nine. This, the, this investigation led to the indictments of nine defendants, including Turkey's former economy minister and three Hulk Bank officials on charges such as bank fraud and money laundering related to the sanctions evasion scheme. One defendant, Mehmet Attila, the bank's deputy general manager for international banking, was tried, and in January 2018, he was convicted. Mr. Zarab, the gold trader, had pleaded guilty and testified about how the scheme had relied on false documents and front companies and how he had paid millions of dollars in bribes to the economy minister and Hulk Bank's general manager. Berman took over January 2018, and there were several meetings with Hulk Bank to try to settle, but they were just too far apart. The DOJ wanted them to pay a heavy fine and admit wrongdoing, but Hulk Bank said it wasn't their fault. They didn't want to admit that they were wrong. Even Steve thought the government was right to demand uh, an admission of wrongdoing, but Mnuchin thought a fine was a bad idea, and that was after he had talked to Erdogan's son-in-law about it. But even the Department of Justice was more concerned with getting an admission of wrongdoing and told Steve that the White House and the White House that the amount was negotiable, the fine. It was more important to get the admission of wrongdoing. Then Erdogan yelled at Trump again in late 2018 at the G20 summit. He handed Trump a memo arguing Hulk Bank hadn't really broken any laws because they were smuggling golden food, not cash. We didn't even use U.S. banks. And Trump looked at the memo real quick and said, uh, this is, looks pretty convincing to me. And then he told Erdogan he wanted to replace the prosecutors in Berman's office because he felt like they were Obama holdovers. And two weeks later, Trump told Erdogan on the phone uh, after he'd returned to the White House that he was pretty sure he could get the Hulk Bank thing shut down for him. And all of this is according to Ambassador Bolton, by the way. Trump asked Bolton to speak with Big Dick Toilet Wine. That's Matthew Whitaker. And uh, Bolton refused. That's obstruction of justice, by the way. Asking Bolton to get the acting attorney general to drop an investigation. You know how I know that's obstruction of justice? Because Trump did the exact same thing with Mike Flynn and Bob Mueller. He asked Comey to drop the case against Flynn. Go easy on Flynn. And he asked McGahn to fire Mueller. All of that's laid out in volume two of the Mueller report. And it meets all three criteria of obstruction of justice. Southern District of New York got a call December 14th then telling them that Pompeo, Mnuchin, and the attorney general were going to be more involved in the case. The Southern District had just drafted a memo to Matthew fucking Whitaker and Rod Rosenstein saying they were going to indict the bank. Rod was on board and asked Berman to come to D.C. to convince Big Dick Toilet Wine. But the goal wasn't to indict, according to this story. Uh, they wanted to use this in, the, the threat of indictments as leverage to get an admission of wrongdoing. But Whitaker, as we know, is an asshole. He wrote a book this year saying the Southern District was always, quote, dreaming up new ways to pester the President Trump throughout my entire tenure at the Department of Justice. And Whitaker came out of his office and took Rod in to his office, leaving Berman out in the waiting area. And he told Rod he wanted the case dropped because charging the bank could put U.S. forces in Syria in danger a suggestion that makes absolutely no fucking sense. And no one in the department could explain it either. What? And Justice Department officials decided to ignore Mr. Whitaker's edict, concluding the most they most likely would outlast Mr. Whitaker in the department since he was serving on an acting basis. And they did not see appeasing Mr. Erdogan as a sufficient justification for closing the investigation. So once Big Dick Toilet Wine left and made way for Bill Barr, the Southern District thought, cool, now we can charge the bank. Nope. Erdogan lobbied Barr, too. The bank was still unwilling to admit wrongdoing. And it seemed to be because Trump was Erdogan's lapdog. They had all this confidence. Then in June 2019, when Berman met with Barr, 
Barr pushed him to drop the charges and terminate the investigation into other suspected conspirators, a move that Berman said was unacceptable and unethical. Quote, this is not how we do things in the Southern District. He told Barr he was having none of it. And Barr could stop future criminal charges, but he couldn't dismiss existing cases without judicial approval. On October 15th, after Trump gave Erdogan the green light to send troops into Syria, but then faced huge political backlash for that, he had to look tough on Turkey. And so only then did the Justice Department allow the bank to be indicted. In June, eight months after the indictment was returned, Mr. Trump fired Mr. Berman. The Justice Department officials cited his handling of the Hulk Bank matter, including his blocking of the proposed global settlement, as the key reason for his removal. In other news, I like beer. Justice Brett Kavanaugh on Wednesday corrected an error in an opinion issued as part of a Supreme Court ruling that barred Wisconsin from counting mail-in ballots that arrive after Election Day. Quote, he said, this is what uh, this was the, the, one of the mistakes Kavanaugh made. He said, states such as Vermont, by contrast, have decided not to make changes to their ordinary elections rules, including to the Election Day deadline for receipt of absentee ballots. That prompted Vermont's Secretary of State to lodge a complaint, saying that Vermont had, in fact, changed its rules to accommodate voters worried about voting during the pandemic. And by Wednesday night, Kavanaugh fixed his error by saying Vermont hadn't changed their election deadline rules. Um, Vermont guy came back and said he was glad that Kavanaugh corrected his error, but, quote, a one-word addition doesn't go far enough. The larger problem with the justice's concurring opinion, and the majority opinion largely, is not the absence of the word deadline. It's the total lack of regard for the voting rights of American citizens. And speaking of the Supreme Court, they will not expedite a case about Pennsylvania elections like the GOP wants them to. The Republicans wanted the Supreme Court to fast-track the case, allowing Pennsylvania three days to receive ballots after the election, even if there's no visible postmark. Uh, The court also allowed North Carolina nine days to receive ballots after Election Day and count them as long as they're postmarked by Election Day. Amy Coney Barrett did not participate in either decision, Uh, not because she recused herself, but she just didn't have time to be read in. Mary Trump tweeted, quote, The Supreme Court rules that all absentee ballots must be counted in North Carolina and Pennsylvania, and it's described as a win, for Democrats, but it's a win for America. The fact that Republicans think it's a loss for them tells you everything you need to know. And Tucker Carlson has made the most hilarious claim I've ever heard. Last night, he got a call. He said he got a call about some explosive Hunter Biden evidence uh, from a colleague, and the colleague was like, I'll send it to you. And they used a large carrier and sent the evidence, but it got stolen along the way, and so now it's missing. And he didn't say what it was. And it's, this is absolutely the dumbest thing I've ever I've ever heard from Fox News. Mind you, Fox News just won a lawsuit saying that they can't be sued for defamation because it can't be expected that they're telling the truth about anything. <laughs> uh, so this is just bananas. I, I've tweeted this out. I've tweeted this video. Of, of Tucker Carlson um, making a claim now that there's some stolen conspiracy, you know, there's a conspiracy to steal and hide this explosive Hunter Biden evidence, but he didn't say what the evidence was. Nope. So basically, the, the, somebody called Tucker Carlson and said, I have some amazing stuff and didn't tell him what it was and didn't make a copy and didn't hand deliver it or have a courier take it. He, he dropped it and, and then it got stolen and none of the cameras in the warehouses picked anything up. The package got to them and it had been opened. It was empty. 
<laughs> this is just, it's like, you know the song Tribute by Tenacious D? This is not the greatest song in the world. This is just a tribute. I, I can't remember the greatest song in the world, but this is a song about the greatest song in the world. I, that's just what this reminds me of. This isn't Hunter Biden material. This is just a tribute. And <laughs> it got fucking stolen by Bigfoot. <laughs> it's just amazing. Um, in other news, Barack Ravid broke some news today about a shift in U.S. policy. Let me just read you the tweets here. He says, this is breaking. Israel and the U.S. will announce tomorrow they are expanding the scientific cooperation agreements between the countries so that they will include the Israeli settlements in the West Bank. Israel, and this is according to Israeli and U.S. officials. It, it, why it matters? This is substantial, a substantial shift in U.S. policy. Until today, the United States government was not allowed to spend taxpayer money in the Israeli settlements in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. But these new, this new agreement will allow it. The agreements will be signed by Netanyahu and U.S. Ambassador David Friedman at the Ariel University in the West Bank. The agreements concern three joint U.S.-Israeli foundations for scientific cooperation that invest government money in research and development in joint U.S.-Israeli projects. The agreements, which were first signed in the 70s, um, included a territorial clause that did not allow um, for spending any money from the foundations in Israeli settlements beyond the 1967 lines. As a result, there were no no U.S. government investments in research and development projects in those settlements. In the amended U.S.-Israeli science agreements, the territorial clause that refers to the 1967 lines will be deleted. Israeli officials told uh, Barack Ravid that the U.S. policy shift was led by David Friedman. The official said Friedman wanted to make this move as a gesture for Netanyahu and the settlers after West Bank annexation was halted as part of the normalization deal with the United Arab Emirates. The Israeli official told him that this move signals U.S. recognition of Israeli sovereignty in the West Bank. When he asked Ambassador Friedman about that, he denied it and said it doesn't represent the U.S. recognition of Israeli sovereignty in the West Bank. Israeli Minister for Higher Education, Ziv Elkin, didn't agree with Friedman. Elkin tweeted, this is a big achievement for Israeli sovereignty in the Judea and Samaria. That's the West Bank. It's another step towards international recognition of our rights in Judea and Samaria. So that's happening in the world. And the very, very conservative economist, the economist, has endorsed Joe Biden. Um, I had tweeted earlier, maybe it was because, remember when Trump told the economist that he coined the phrase, prime the pump? (laughs) It's so funny. He doesn't know how a pump works. He doesn't know what priming the pump even means. Uh, So, yeah, anyway, the economist has endorsed Joe Biden. And Falwell Jr. is suing Liberty University, blaming them for his ruined reputation. It's their fault. So that's also really hilarious. Uh, We'll be right back with Danny Brzezowski. Uh, She's the Democratic candidate for Illinois 16th District for for the Flip It Blue segment. And then later I'll be speaking with David Rothkopf, author of the book Traitor, A History of American Betrayal from Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump. So stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey everybody, it's AG. Healthy snacks have a bad reputation because most of them aren't very good. They don't fill you up. Empty calories and they're kind of gross. They don't satisfy your cravings. They don't keep you full. But this Helping of Daily Beans is sponsored by Monk Pack and they've cracked the code when it comes to tasty snacks. Uh, But... They have close to no sugar, and these are the Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars. They have less than one gram of sugar, two to three grams of nut carbs, and they're only 150 calories. They're great for anyone following a keto lifestyle. They're perfect snack. They've got just the right amount of crunch and salt and sweet. It's They're so, so delicious. I've been trying to eat better. I get tripped up by snacking. But these are these are so good. I, they have They have that crunch that I need. 
and they have delicious flavors like pecan, almond, sea salt, sea salt dark chocolate, and peanut butter dark chocolate. Uh, my favorite is the sea salt dark chocolate. It's so delicious, um, but they're all so good. And they're packed with protein. They're filling, so they you know they satisfy your cravings. They're perfect for a quick snack to indulge your sweet tooth without guilt. Um, they're keto-friendly, gluten-free, plant-based, non-GMO, no soy, no trans fats or sugar alcohols or artificial colors. So you can enjoy Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars while working or running errands or put one in your pack on a bike ride. Try it for yourself. You'll see. We have a special deal for listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack products by visiting MonkPack.com and entering our promo code DAILYBEANS at checkout. To get started, just go to MonkPack.com. That's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com and select any product and then enter promo code DAILYBEANS at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monk Pack, good food you can count on. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time to flip it blue. I'm Joining me today for the Flip It Blue segment is the Democratic candidate for Illinois 16th District to the U.S. House of Representatives. It's Danny Brozowski, and she is running against incumbent Republican Adam Kinzinger, who's been there since 2013. Danny, welcome to Daily Beans. How are you? I'm so good. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you because uh, Illinois 16th District is a very interesting uh, district we're trying to flip this seat in. Can you give me some demographics about your district and who the constituents are that live there? Yeah, for sure. So this is a big district just west of the Chicago suburbs. This is actually the last remaining Republican-held district in northern Illinois. So last cycle, we flipped the seats of Sean Kasten and Lauren Underwood, um, and that was it. Now it's just Kinzinger hanging out here, a little island of red amidst a sea of blue. And we've got a really great shot at unseating him. So the district is super mixed. We've got a big metro area in the city of Rockford on the north side of the district. We have DeKalb, which is where Northern Illinois University is. And then we've got a whole bunch of smallish towns and rural areas. So most of our votes come from the more densely populated areas of the district. But by landmass, it is a, it's a really big district. All are parts of 14 counties. And a lot of it is rural. Yeah, and I know that um, a lot of the rural counties this cycle and in, in the 2018 cycle are having a, a a hard time with the representatives they currently have that are Republicans because they're just sort of being left behind. And and so I think it's very important to, and, and your platform addresses a lot of the concerns of the rural constituents as well as the ones in the more urban areas. So um, first and foremost, I wanted to, to talk to you about um, some of your... Um, uh, platform issues here, especially healthcare, because I uh, most of the uh, congressional candidates I talk to, um, a lot of their constituents are really worried about whether they're going to be covered for pre-existing conditions. And in the rural, more rural areas, can they have access to healthcare at all? Some of these are, are healthcare deserts, and so I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your plan for healthcare and and how you want to tackle it if you're elected to Congress. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So uh, as you point out, healthcare is a critically important, a really urgent issue for people in districts all over the United States, and particularly here in the 16th. Prior to the passage of the Affordable Care Act, we had something like 60,000 people in this district of 700,000-ish folks um, who didn't have access to healthcare, and that's too many. And after the passage of the ACA and its subsequent implementation, we had 37,000 people who didn't have access to healthcare. Now, that's a number prior to the pandemic, so we know that there's some fluctuation. And what that tells me is that the ACA did a lot of good for people in this district, but that it didn't do good enough. 
And so I'm for expanding access to healthcare, making sure that coverage is available to everyone. I'm for capping prescription drug costs. This is something that, you know, it continues to just frustrate and frankly infuriate me that we are so unable to pass legislation that caps prescription drug costs when we know that this particular issue is something that's entirely bipartisan, right? This keeps everybody in the United States of America up at night. It's something that we know people are really, really worried about the rising cost of prescription drugs. And we still have people like my opponent who vote against legislation like the Elijah Elijah Cummings um, prescription cap and prescription drug cost piece of legislation. We have to fix that and we have to fix it urgently. And and part of the way we do that is with campaign finance reform. Um, And part of the way we do it is by having these really open conversations about how critically important healthcare is and how problematic it is to have a healthcare system that's profit driven. That system is always going to treat patients like customers first. Mm. Yeah, but for-profit healthcare is never a winning proposition. Uh, (laughs) um, I'm a a veteran, I get my care um, through the Department of of Veterans Affairs. Donald Trump himself got some of the most world-class medicine when he went to Walter Reed. Um, which was, uh, by the way, administered by people who he calls suckers and losers. Uh, but he got that, you know, top of the line health care uh, regardless. And I think everyone, you know, I'm, is entitled to that. So I thank you for 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 sharing that position. And you mentioned economic. Um, well, like you mentioned campaign finance report, reform. And so I want to talk a little bit about economic justice and how that ties in, because so many things tie into health care. And so many things tie into the economy. I mean, they're all intertwined. And I think that that's where Republicans keep coming up short because our health care is tied to our employment often. This pandemic has uh, caused a lot of people to lose that employment. Uh, Donald Trump is in court right now trying to kick people off or shut down or gut the Affordable Care Act. And also he put he put out his 60 Minutes interview today where he said, yeah, I'm trying to get rid of the ACA. And that's why I'm trying to put Amy Coney Barrett and, and all of the Republicans, you know, including your opponent, are for this. They voted time and time again to, to gut this. But as far as campaign finance reform goes and economic justice, can you talk a little bit about um, because, you know, you're backed by Indivisible Now and Citizens United, Common Defense and how important it is to tell us how important it is to get this money out of politics so that we can all start at the same baseline and have actual debates about our policies. Yeah. So I think your point is so well taken and it is exactly the way I think about it at the start of this campaign, which was almost 14 months ago now, um, you know, when people would ask me, what are the most urgent issues facing the people of your district? I would always cite things, you know, really practical things like healthcare access and education and jobs and you know, improving our roads, bridges, and waterways, you know, these very sort of pragmatic things that we can see and feel that affect our lives in really obvious ways every single day. And over the course of the past 14 months, as I have become more and more and more educated and talked to so many people, including so many people who represent those organizations that you just rattled off, it's a huge coalition of people who've gotten behind this campaign. And in conversations with those folks, what I've come to understand is that so often, the obstacles standing in the way of our legislators accomplishing those critical things on behalf of our constituents, it's money. And it's big money in politics specifically, which has so significantly corrupted the integrity of our democracy, it's hardly even fair to call it a democracy anymore. When people like my opponent can be bought and paid for, and nobody bats an eye that we come to expect it, that's not democracy, that's corruption. And it's problematic in the short term, right? So we just talked about prescription drug costs. 
you know, you may wonder how legislators like my opponent could vote against capping prescription drug costs when we know how problematic this is, when we know how worried people are about it. And then you look at how he's funded. He's taken $300,000 from big pharma. So of course he's beholden to them and not us. And so that's a short-term problem. But you know what I actually think is the long-term problem here is that our participation rates in the electoral process, right? Voter participation is relatively speaking low. We have so many people who look at this world of politics and they see a nefarious political elite. They see all of these sort of dirty politicians and they see the system riddled with corruption and they perceive themselves to be totally powerless. And so it creates this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, right? It's, it's cyclical and it's deeply systemic. And it puts people who are already perhaps less likely to participate in the process in a position of feeling like, well, it really doesn't matter. Why would I participate? And I think addressing campaign finance reform in a really comprehensive and frankly, really aggressive way helps us to restore democracy. I evaluate every policy that I consider against a set of values. And you know, this one, the question is really, does this restore power to the people? And where campaign finance reform is concerned, absolutely it restores power to the people and that's what i'm for yeah i couldn't i couldn't agree more and and that seems to me from all the folks that i've spoken to on the flip it blue segment that seems to be that that's how republicans buy these seats with with special interest money and they fail to represent the people and i think that the voters are tired of it i mean you know in 2018 all the districts around your district flipped we had lauren underwood for example nurse you know um, a woman like just representing the people and you yourself are a first generation college grad, small business owner, activist, organizer. Can you talk a little bit about why it's so important to have people who live in the district and represent the the needs of the voters uh, in Congress rather than these bought and paid for seats and, and how that kind of battles the corruption we're seeing in the current discourse in Washington? Yeah, I love this question. So it, it gets to the heart of uh, what I call representation and which my opponent has called identity politics, right? So I think it is important to have people like me running for Congress. I am a queer woman. I grew up poor. My dad was in the army for 25 years. My dad's a Gulf War veteran. Um, and so he too gets his health care from the VA. And I have had the experience of trying to help him navigate that. I have the experience of, you know, wearing shoes that are too small. I know what it's like to pay for gas with change from the floorboards and to live in trailers and see ants coming up out of the heating vents because there's never heat coming through them. So I have all of these experiences and those experiences of mine aren't particularly unique. They're not particularly unique in districts like this one. And what that means is that when I go to Congress, I'm going to understand based on my own personal experiences the problems that face the people of districts like the 16th. It's something that I think is really important and that I hear from voters all the time that they really value. Even if we differ on what the nuances of solutions to those problems might ultimately look like, I understand the problems that are facing the people of Illinois 16, and it's not something that we can say about the incumbent. Unfortunately, it's not something that we can say about a lot of people who are currently serving who have been, you know, sort of bred to be politicians. They come up in this you know, worlds that is maybe a little bit in a bubble, it creates distance between our representatives and the people that they purport to represent. And that's really difficult. I, I find it really hard to believe that you can represent 700,000 people without knowing what it's really like to be one of those people. 
And so I think the perspective that I and people like me who come to the table having, you know, these sort of rich, sometimes challenging lived experiences, I think it's, I think that's incredibly valuable. And in, in my own experience over the course of the campaign, people all across the political spectrum really relate to and really value that. Yeah. And and I want to even expand on that a little bit more, specifically talking about social social justice and how that is inextricably linked to environmental justice, uh, because as we know, and, and also healthcare and the economy, because um, disenfranchised voters often um, are hit the hardest when it comes to the pandemic or in the environment. Um, and that all sort of starts with social social justice. So can you talk a little bit about your social, social justice platform and how that sort of bleeds into or subsumes those other, you know, those other issues that your that your constituents face? Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. They're all related. And the social justice stuff and the environmental justice, I guess, those two things are kind of where my roots are in activism and organizing. Um, that's kind of where I found my political sea legs, I guess. Um, And so those things are really deeply close to my heart. You know, the guy I'm running against is one of the House's most anti-woman, anti-LGBTQ members. He has supported restricting abortions for rape survivors. He voted against the Equality Act. He and I debated a couple of weeks ago and in conversation, though he failed to show up to vote on extending the deadline for ratification of the ERA, um, he justified what would, it's obvious now, have been a no vote by suggesting, you know, that the women are equal, that we have everything we could ever want. Everything's fine, you silly. Well, you're doing great. You silly virtue signalist. Uh, everything's great. Everyone's equal. Yeah, it's so disappointing to me to see those things continue to happen, to see that perspective still so prevalent, particularly amongst our leadership. Um, You know, I look around at all of the people that I see struggling and suffering. And what I always say is that I believe the role of the government is to provide for the greater good and that doing so requires we center the agendas of our most vulnerable communities. And this is where that social justice stuff, having the language to talk about it and that being kind of the framework, um, the lens through which I view the world is it, it really comes in handy because it makes it rather easy to think about who those vulnerable communities are, right? It's women, it's Black folks, it's immigrants, it's the queer community. But you know what? It's also our seniors, it's our kids, it's people in rural communities. You know, it's districts just like this one that are often overlooked, right? We live in a blue state, you know, where we don't have, there's not a huge Biden campaign presence in districts like this one. Um, And it's because we are sort of taken for granted from a political perspective. Gerrymandering happens and lines are drawn and people with power make decisions on behalf of people who live in districts like this one, and we all get left behind. And that's a kind of vulnerability too. And so when I'm thinking about environmental justice, when I'm thinking about political justice and economic justice and social justice, when I'm thinking about those things, and I do kind of think about them as the pillars of this campaign and the way I consider policy is through each of those respective lenses, I'm thinking about how we put the people who are already at a disadvantage at the front, how we lift them up. Because if we're not doing that, then we're failing. If the people who are struggling are still struggling and the people who are doing well are doing better, then we are failing and we have to stop doing that. Yeah. And and it's 
plain as day what what the Republicans all the way up and down from local races all the way to to the White House are trying to do. I mean, just recently, Department Department of Homeland Security, after Bill Barr and Donald Trump labeled a couple of cities as anarchistic jurisdictions, um, told the DHS to get their 12 top agencies together to give, give a list of programs that they should cut funding to for these anarchistic jurisdictions. Over a thousand programs they wanted to cut or defund things like COVID relief, child care, HIV prevention, things that impact the sickest and poorest in our communities. And it's their agenda openly and blatantly. It, it boggles my mind. Yeah, it's it's offensive. And again, that's corruption. And I, I know that I say the word corruption a lot, and I hope it doesn't sound like I'm not taking it seriously. I say it a lot because I think we have come to accept so much of the behavior in our political system, particularly amongst those that we would deem the political elite. We've come to accept so much of that behavior as commonplace or normal, but it's not normal. That level of corruption is not what I believe in American democracy, right? I, like I said, my dad was in the army my entire childhood. I grew up thinking of myself as a patriot and I still do. And that word gets such a nasty rap because patriotism has been conflated with nationalism, particularly over the course of the past four years. But for me, I believe in a version of American democracy that can work for everybody, but I believe equally that it's failed far too many of us. And that's the thing that we have to fight for. And calling corruption exactly that when we see it is a part of how we get back to those ideals. And for me, those ideals are accessibility and inclusivity and equality and justice. You know, when we said with liberty and justice for all, we meant for everybody. We didn't mean for some, you know, precious few for a patriarchy that prioritizes whiteness and maleness and heteronormativity and wealth. We meant for all of us. And I think it's really important for us to suss out that corruption, to call it what it is, and to do everything we can to just slay it. <laughs> yeah, agreed. And before I let you go, a couple other things that I think are really important here um, on your uh, platform is the fight against family separation um, and, you know, giving a path to citizenship uh, for, for DREAMers and DACA recipients uh, and other social justice issues, too, like codifying Roe v. Wade and legalizing marijuana and expunging the records of those who have been arrested for it and uh, easy access to birth control and STI testing. All of these things fit right into the narrative that you were just explaining. But just this new story that came out a couple of days ago that 545 children, we don't know where their parents are. And this zero tolerance policy at the border that is just absolutely going to be a stain on our history just for and probably forever and i i i'm it really it sorry it just really upsets me but i i want to know kind of what what your thoughts are what you want to do when you hit the ground running if you get to congress there um and to to sort of combat this kind of absolute injustice yeah so um immigration is kind of an emotional activator for me too and a couple of years ago when we were all having those family belong together rallies when it became obvious that we were permitting some really just atrocious and heartbreaking policies at the border. Um, this is something I, I haven't, not a day has gone by that I haven't thought about it. And in this district, we have a really robust um, immigration activism community, particularly in the Northern part of the district. And I am in regular conversation with those activists about how we fight. And many of them are, are regular, you know, take regular trips to the border. Um, and there are a handful of things that we need to do. So I think, it, you know, putting into place 
more pathways to citizenship. You know, immigration is a funny one because uh, on both sides of the aisle, people say, yes, we need immigration reform. And often we mean totally different things. But I find when I'm talking to people whose ideology differs from my own, that starting with that, starting with, yes, we need comprehensive immigration reform is a good place to to kind of, you know, to kind of start that conversation. Um, For me, what that looks like is making immigration accessible and affordable. We have far too many people who are trying to, you know, become citizens of the United States of America. And there's, there's no way for them to do that. It's not that, you know, there are just tens of thousands of people flooding the borders all the time in an attempt to break the law. It's that the laws aren't there to permit them to do it, quote, the right way, the way that some, you know, a a malicious GOP agenda would have you believe that they're they're flouting. That that doesn't exist. Those laws don't exist for far too many people. And so we need to we need to create pathways to citizenship for so many people who are trying to come to this country. Um, We need to make sure that they have resources to do that and that the process is seamless, that it's accessible, that it's affordable. Uh, where refugees are concerned, you know, I think about the kinds of humanitarian crises abroad that often we use to justify our intervention. Um, and I mean, military intervention so often, you know, if, if we heard that some, you know, that somewhere in the Middle East, for example, there was a country that was, you know, <laughs> detaining refugees in these just woeful, inhumane conditions that people, that, that children were being you know, kept in cages, that very young women were being raped, that people were dying in custody. You know, if we had an economic interest in that country, we would be sending troops instantly, right? You served, you know that that's the, that's exactly, that's every circumstance that would justify theoretically our intervention abroad. And we're doing that. We, the United States of America, we're, we are committing those atrocities on our own soil and we are doing it with the support of a lot of people in this country. We have fallen so far. Yeah. It's so heartbreaking to know that that's happening. And, uh, you know, we have to address it immediately. We have to, you know, stop the, the for-profit detention centers. We really need to evaluate ICE in and of itself as an agency. Uh, we need to get really serious about how we address this problem. And the problem is not immigration. The problem is how we handle it. Yeah, you're so right. Every time I talk to to someone who, um, uh, you know, is uh, on the Republican side or has a Republican way of thinking, the only objection they have to most of this is that it's illegal. It's illegal to immigrate here. It, and so, you you know, you point out it, it is not illegal to seek asylum here. That is within the law. Uh, and how about, OK, deal. How about we don't make it? How about we make it legal? Uh, and, and, and not take 23 years and $15,000. What if... And then and then if they have an objection, then you can kind of try to fish out why they really don't <laughs> want that to happen. But generally, I think you're right. Everyone sort of agrees. If it were legal, you know, that that's that's their main objection. So I think you're right. We just make it legal. Um, can you let listeners know where they can um, volunteer, text bank, phone bank, contribute to your campaign? Yeah, of course. So our social media, we're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's either Danny, D-A-N-I, for Illinois or Danny for Congress on all of those platforms. The website is dannyforillinois.com, D-A-N-I-F-O-R-I-L-L-I-N-O-I-S.com. We need tons of people in this GOTV stretch as we come, come toward the end here. 
uh, we're feeling really, really good. Listen, this district looked like a long shot at the outset of the race, but as the map began to expand and things changed so rapidly over the course of the past year of campaigning, it became more and more obvious that Illinois 16 is in play and it looks like it's going to be a close one. So, you know, if you can make a donation, if you can make phone calls a couple of hours a week for us, if you want a field trip out here to Illinois 16, we will give you masks and gloves and literature to pass out because it is really, really critical that we turn out every single Democratic voter and that we convert lots and lots of others. Yep, you're exactly right. It's the final push. So I want to thank you so much, Democratic candidate for Illinois 16th District, um, Danny Bershkovsky. I, I appreciate your time today. We'll see if we can unseat Adam Kinsinger. Thanks for talking to me today. Hey, thank you. Hey, everybody, it's AG. We've got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode. It's the Jordan Harbinger Show. It's a podcast you should check out since you're a fan of high quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people if I do say so. This show, uh, The Jordan Harbinger Show, covers a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. There's a ton of episodes you'll find interesting. Since you're a fan of this show, I recommend check out, checking out episode 419 with David Scheimer. We've talked to him before. He talks about the 100 years of covert election uh, interference from Russia. Or episode 410 with H.R. McMaster called The Fight to Defend the Free World. So there's an episode for everyone, though, no matter who you are or what you're into. The show covers stories like uh, how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. The podcast covers a lot, uh, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. So I promise you, you'll find something useful you can apply to your own life, whether that's an actionable routine change to boost your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak. It changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show. We think you will, too. So search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, everybody, welcome back. Today, uh, for the interview, I am talking to host of Deep State Radio, friend of mine, and author of the new book, Traitor, A History of American Betrayal from Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump, David Rothkopf. David, welcome. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm really well. I know it was right around this time or last month that we had planned, before COVID hit, we had planned to have a kind of a, a, a meetup uh, in D.C. And, and of course, you know, we had to put that off. So I was looking forward to seeing you around this time, but we're all at home. Yeah, it's true. We were going to have kind of pot palooza and we were going to get everybody together. And hopefully we'll do that when people are allowed to go back into public places again. But I'm afraid that's not going to be for a long time. Yeah, I don't think so either. Uh, everybody, I hope you're voting. Vote early. Um, <laughs> speaking of that. Now, uh, let's talk about uh, this book, which is available now everywhere you get books. It's called, I, I love the title too, because it says from De Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump. And I, I feel like, I feel like this long history of, of betrayal of the United States is, is just a fascinating one. Can you, I mean, can you tell us what prompted you to write this? I mean, I think I know, but. Well, yeah, I'm mean, look, I'm living in the same life you are, you know, both of us have been watching this catastrophe from the beginning. Both of us have seen Trump sell out his country. Um, and it wasn't just that he sold out the country. It was that he embraced our number one enemy in the world. Uh, he, you know, actively colluded with that enemy. He did so with staff that, you know, included, uh, you know, friends and aides who were tied to Russian intelligence. Um, he publicly embraced the Russians. He uh, defended them. He later obstructed justice on their behalf. He 
gave them uh, benefits that no other president would have thought to give them. He weakened our alliances. He did all these things. And and frankly, you know, the the the, the reaction that any other generation of Americans who saw this kind of thing would have been is to have their hair on fire. And you had your hair on fire and I had my hair on fire. And there are a bunch of us out here who are like, holy mackerel, folks, this guy is a traitor. He is betraying his country. He's betraying his oath. And the problem was that Donald Trump every single day had a new outrage because he wasn't just a traitor. He's also racist. He's a misogynist. He's corrupt. He's a lousy president. He's a really terrible person. Um, you know, I mean, and, and so what happens is every 20 minutes, there's something new. And then yeah. he, on top of it, is going out there going hoax, 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 hoax. Mm-hmm. And so when you went up to somebody, you know, at the time of the impeachment or after the impeachment, you said, you know, this guy has committed one of the great crimes in the history of the country. They just roll their eyes. It's like, okay, enough. I don't want to hear this. And the Trump strategy of fog and repeating disinformation took a toll. And I thought the only way that we can put this back in perspective is to step away from politics and say, where does this fit in American history? How bad is it? There have been other people who've betrayed the country. Is this worse? How does it compare to Benedict Arnold? How does it compare to Aaron Burr? How does it compare to the Confederates? How does it compare to spies for Germany or Japan or Russia or China during the course of the past, you know, hundred years? And it's very, very illuminating because, you know, Donald Trump is not the first traitor in our history, but as president of the United States, he was the one who was in the position to do the most damage. Yeah. And, and, you know, you're right. It's just a fire hose. He's a serial betrayer. <laughs> he yeah. really is. And right. I'm, just today, I'm putting together the story uh, from the New York Times about Hulk Bank and Erdogan and how Erdogan made a phone call to Trump and said, could you please not, you know, indict my bank that is helping fund Iran's nuclear program by skirting your sanctions? Could you not? And he did it. He pressured the Department of Justice to not indict those specific indi- key individuals. Uh, a- a- and that's just, that blows my mind, especially with the fog and the bluster, you say, around him, you know, coming out and saying, the Iran nuclear deal is bullshit. I've torn it up. It's stupid. Uh, I, we're going <laughs> to isolate them. That's my Middle East plan is to economically, you know, isolate Iran. And and here he is letting Turkey off the hook for, you know, <laughs> basically laundering money through uh through gold smuggling to help fund Iran's nuclear program. It's bananas. It's bananas. And look, that story is an outrageous story. And if you if you went into the nearest diner, if they were allowing people in, or the nearest voting line, and you said, wait a minute, Donald Trump has committed a clear impeachable offense. Same with Bill Barr. It betrayed the country he helped out Iran's nuclear program. He worked with criminals. He undermined our justice system. And, you know, it, this is, involves Turkey and it involves Hulk Bank. They would, they would tune you out in 15 seconds, even though that's as clear a case of high-level corruption of the worst sort as we've ever seen in the United States. I mean, Teapot Dome, Watergate, 
nowhere nearly as bad as Hulk Bank. Nobody knows what the you know what I'm saying, but we <laughs> yeah. you, know, you can't get through the fog. Um, and and frankly, you know, if Donald Trump wins re-election and Democrats take control of the Senate, he should be impeached for that. Um, yeah. And, and and by the way, I just add a Philip to the whole thing. Um, you know, Biden was approached by Erdogan, and he was asked, "Would you intervene?" And Biden said, I'd get, you know, we'd get impeached if you did that. He did. Yeah, he, he said exactly that. He's like, no, Obama would be impeached if he did that. Right, right. But <laughs> but we know this. Michael Flynn, felon, was a, a lobbyist for who? Turkey. Mm-hmm. And we know that one of the things that uh, Erdogan wanted was to get rid of the prosecutor who was responsible for this case, who was Preet Bharara. Yeah, he wanted to fire Preet. And what happened? What happened at the very beginning of the Donald Trump-Michael Flynn administration? Yeah. They canned Preet. I think they canned everybody, but they were not going to can Preet. Right, but 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 they did. But they ended and, up and doing so it. So you got to ask yourself a question. Do these two stories intersect as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, first, I'm sure. I mean, you know, I, I, I spend my life speculating, but when, you know, the, it's... it's it's really coincidental, if not. But let's let's talk about um, how how this does compare. Uh, back going back to your book, because you know you bring up stuff like Teapot Dome and Watergate, and and I think, oh, how droll, you know, when <laughs> when compared. Yeah, it's a droll little book. You should, <laughs> that's that's what people. Yeah. should it's a barrel of laughs. It's like when somebody in Flagstaff, Arizona. complains about rush hour and I live in Los Angeles. So it's just (laughs) like, "Mm, that's adorable. Thank you for your time. Uh, Talk, talk a little bit about just the scale uh, and how, I mean, how is it? Why do you think it is we've gotten to this point where the country seemingly, you know, tunes out, like you said, they just don't care when it's just so massive. You know, I don't, I don't know. Um, We, uh, we spent 20 years after the Cold War trying to pretend that Russia had changed in its character, and it and it didn't. And by the way, I was in the Clinton administration, and we led the charge, you know, of this kind of romanticized version that this country was no longer a threat. Uh, we went through, um, uh, you, you know, a lot of things in the interim uh, that have numbed us further. You know, the the. Bush administration employed torture, and we we got used to that. And the Bush administration launched a war for no reason that led to hundreds of thousands of dead civilians, dead innocents in Iraq. And we got used to that. Um, And so, you know, we were gradually being numbed over time. And then we come to this administration and we see this behavior and at first, there was a certain degree of um, outrage, but because the president controlled the executive branch, because the president controlled the big microphone, because the president was able to obstruct justice, because he had attorney generals who bought it into this ridiculous OLC memo that said you can't indict a president, uh, uh, because Mueller um, – uh, he of blessed memory should 
you know, would, would, was essentially capitulated to the demands on him to limit his investigation um, uh, and to not follow the money, which is the beginning of every investigation and, and, and so on. Um, mm-hmm. and, and because the Senate majority leader and the Senate majority essentially said, well, we're not going to hold you accountable, uh, we had a year or two of building outrage at this, and then there was no result. And you started to think, well, the Mueller, you know, the Mueller report, you know, Mueller didn't save us, but maybe it was because there was nothing there. The Senate didn't convict, but maybe it was because of nothing there. Well, even if I bring it up, nothing's going to happen. And and it became, you know, Sisyphus rolling the rock up the hill and, and it constantly coming back down to the bottom. And at a certain point, people said, why don't we not roll the rock up the hill? Even though it was, it, 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 it's, it's a profoundly consequential story. Mm. Is that your life story for the past couple of years? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got the rock right over here in the studio uh, yeah. every day. We roll right. up the hill and then let, let it fall down. I'm lying here beneath the rock. <laughs> lying here beneath. It's, it's an Indiana Jones situation for sure. Uh, but no, I mean, you're right. And it, and it's got to the point where he has enough people in enough places and has removed oversight into his administration to such a degree that we don't know a lot of what's going on except what we get from investigative journalists and like, you know, these individuals within the departments and the agencies who are willing to speak you know, on the record, but anonymously, uh, to just to get the news out, just to get the story out. Uh, so it's, it's, um, because we don't have these inspectors general in place anymore. We don't have, uh, you know, the Peter Strucks and the, and the Lieutenant Colonel Vindman's and the Fiona Hills and the Misha Yovanovich's and the, you know, the people inside who, who are supposed to keep be keeping their eye on this shit. Right. And, you know, I mean, it's no question but that Putin's intelligence operation to compromise the 2016 election was the most successful such operation in the history of, 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 of Soviet intelligence, in the, in the history of intelligence uh, uh, um, operations against the United States. Um, but it didn't end with getting Trump elected. Trump um, obstructing justice, Trump rigging the system to kill off each investigation. All of those things had the effect not just of protecting Trump, but of clouding the issue around what really happened, which allows the president to go out on the campaign trail and go, Russia, Russia, Russia. Everybody brings up Russia. But it has been proven that there was no Russia. Well, no, it was actually proven that there was Russia. You know, but the Mueller report was too long for most people, you know, and so it, that didn't it didn't really get through. And the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence report, which was bipartisan, was too long for most Americans. And and it came out too late. And and so part of the disinformation campaign, part of the Russian operation has been undercutting the rule of law in the United States and our own faith in our systems. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, a thousand pages for the Senate counterintelligence report. Volume five. That was volume five <laughs> of their of their investigation into Trump Russia. Right, and and the, and there's a there's a law that's known to uh, book publishers, and that is nothing that was ever labeled volume five was ever read by anybody. <laughs> oh yeah, cool. <laughs> that's a good that's a good point. Uh, although I you know. I'm not sure how you didn't have five volumes of how Trump betrayed uh, the United States uh, of your book. <laughs> I don't know how you got it all into one book. Well, what I was trying to do in the book was say, well, look, here's Benedict Arnold, or here's Aaron Burr, or here is Jefferson Davis, or here is John Brown, who was unfortunately convicted of treason, or or here are the spies from the 20th century. What did they do? You know, Benedict Arnold is, is you know, every school child is taught that's what a traitor is. Did him taking some money and giving some plans to uh, West Point, at Fort at West Point, um, uh, or joining sides with the British damage the Revolutionary War effort? Uh, was it such an outlier like embracing Russia? Um you know, was he in any position to do the kind of damage that we've just talked about to our institutions, our credibility in the world as Trump has done? And you go, no, no, Benedict Benedict Arnold was nowhere nearly as bad as Trump. And, you know, I mean, Aaron Burr was vice president of the United States who shot and killed a former Treasury Secretary of the United States and went out to form his own country. He wasn't convicted of treason, but the terms of damage to the United States you know, did he do anything like it? No. You know, and, 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 and that's what happens. You go through history and you say, let's go through each one. Let's set aside politics. Let's just look at the facts. And when you go through it all, you go, no, Trump's the worst. He is the worst. His betrayal of the United States is the worst betrayal of the United States of anybody who was ever in a high position of power within the United States. Ah, I tend to agree. So everybody definitely want to check out this book. It's really, really I'm, I'm tearing through it. It's so good. It's called Traitor, A History of American Betrayal from Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump. And uh, the author is our guest. We've been talking to David Rothkopf. Thank you so much. And check out Deep State Radio, too. You have to. It's really good. Well, we have to get you back on Deep State Radio soon. I agree to your terms. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. We'll be right back with the good news. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's AG, and this portion of Daily Beans is brought to you by Sun Basket. If you're looking for fresh dinners that taste great and they're easy to make and they're good for you, that is what Sun Basket does. They deliver fresh and ready meals that are fast, fresh, and delicious. They heat up in just minutes. You can enjoy incredibly tasty and nutritious meals while avoiding crowded grocery stores. Sun Basket has amazing recipes for all kinds of dietary preferences, too, including paleo, gluten free, Mediterranean, vegetarian, and more. They make it very easy and incredibly convenient. Everything is pre portioned and ready to prep and cook. So you can enjoy a dinner full of organic produce and clean ingredients in just a little as 15 minutes, no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen, which is good for me because I'm a terrible cook, but these turn out so beautifully. Each week, Sunbasket offers a wide range of recipes to choose from, so you can try amazing dishes like blueberry apricot pork chops with sautéed kale, southwestern turkey and sweet potato skillet, and butternut squash quesadillas, which are so good with black beans and vegan queso. And you can order from any recipes across their menu, skip a week when you need to, or double up, or snooze. It's so easy to use. It's so user-friendly. And Sunbasket facilities have the highest levels of food and safety employee safety, because they reinforce Enforce their strict adherence to their operating procedures, but they've also increased sanitization frequency in their distribution centers to protect you and your family and their employees. 
And right now, Sunbasket is offering $35 off your order when you go to sunbasket.com slash dailybeans and enter promo code dailybeans at checkout. That's sunbasket.com slash dailybeans and enter promo code dailybeans at checkout for $35 off your order. Sunbasket.com slash dailybeans. And don't forget to enter promo code dailybeans. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. And it's Friday, which means Shira is here. What is up, Amy Carrero? Boop, 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 boop. I'm getting ready for not celebrating Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> Halloween is canceled this year. <laughs> but what about you? How are you doing? Same. Uh, I'm good. I'm really good. Yeah, I'm going to dress up as a, a quarantined person this year. Um, <laughs> a quarantined person that's slowly losing her mind. Sexy quarantined person. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm going to be. So you're going you're gonna to add kitty ears, but definitely not comb your hair. Right. Yes. That, gotcha. I think that's the best way to do it or maybe a bunny tail i don't know i haven't decided <laughs> if i if you can get your hands on a bunny tail that's my vote <laughs> okay we'll do uh, i'd probably make one out of something around oh, here i've got yeah. a lot of cat toys that could double we'll see oh, um, shit. but uh i'm so glad you're here because that means it's friday and it's time for the mm-hmm. good news and that's always a good thing and of course after yeah. this everybody if you want to join us at four o'clock today Pacific time for our happy hour. That's for patrons only. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash Miller She Wrote. It's only three bucks a month. You get ad free episodes, all the book clubs and bonus content and all kinds of stuff. It's really, it's a a cool group to be a part of. Uh, So Amy, do you want to kick us off here with the first piece of good news? I do. Do I was hoping you'd ask me. Um, yes, I read ahead. I'm sorry. Okay, the first piece of good news we have comes from La Cubanita. She didn't include her protons, but pronouns, but la, I'm assuming, is she, her. So, La Cubanita writes, Hola, Beanie Babes. Been a long-time listener since the MSW Kitchen days. Thank you for being the silver lining in the dark cloud of the Trump years. Anyway, here is my good news story. You know how everyone bashes a youth vote saying that they never show up? Well, I am overjoyed to say that my two sons and all three of my nieces, ages 18 and 28, have voted early in Florida. Woo-hoo. All caps. I'm so proud of the next generation for rocking the vote. There's hope for our democracy yet. P.S. Given how shit awful 2020 has been, I'm happy to report that I've won Teacher of the Year for my school, despite the fact that our sinister sycophantic governor... Uh, comma death sentence capitalized has forced us back to in-person teaching but i do love my job and then she included two very cool photos one of them she's wearing a mask uh with the american flag on it and a sticker that says i voted and then the second one is a biden harris i guess is that a lawn sign do you think yeah it looks like it huh so cool but this is so fantastic. And we were just, Amy, you and I were just talking about Florida before we hit record. Yeah, we sure were. We were talking about like, what's it go- like, is everybody waiting to make Thanksgiving plans until that we find out what happens on election night or election week, I should say, because it yeah. could not be that night. And then we talked about how it, if if 
Biden wins Florida the night of, it's pretty much game over for Trump because he would have to win Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin and that that congressional district up in Maine uh, and probably hang on to Arizona in order to win. And that's just seemingly impossible. But Florida counts their votes now. They're counting now. They don't wait until, you know, some states wait until after the polls close to start even counting. Such a bad idea. Yeah. But Florida's counting now. And and with everyone early voting, they have over um, between seven and eight million votes Ooh. already cast in Florida. Yes. And so most of those are going to be counted. And even when we don't early vote, Florida usually has their results pretty quick. Yep, they sure do. Let me ask you this question. Do you think, like, what could make up this whole entire year for you? Could it be, like... Make 2020 worth it. Like, I mean, obviously not with COVID or anything, but generally it's been a shit year. But like if we turn Florida blue this year, is that just like instant forgiveness for 2020? Uh, It would have to be Florida, turning Florida blue. Um, to make up for the rest of, of everything that's happened in 2020, Texas. I would also like to see Texas. <laughs> yes. You called it. Uh, I would like us to totally. pick up seven Senate seats and at least 15 House seats. And then... You hear that, universe? Make it happen. And then I will be... Anything else on top of that is gravy. But, uh, you know, the, I think that those would be my requirements for, for 2020 if it's asking for forgiveness. Those are so solid requirements and i we're putting it out there all the beansies put it out there we're putting it on the vision board that's what's going to happen awesome well thank you very much and congratulations on teacher of the year so cool la kiwanita next up is from Sinead, and they say this pronounced Sinead. i know i grew up in the 80s <laughs> i know Sinead <laughs> o'connor uh and this is uh pronouns she and her Greetings from Auckland, New Zealand. As an Irish woman who grew up in England and now lives in New Zealand uh, with a few other stops in there, I have seen my fair share of democracies and I've been watching in horror at the Trump disaster circus for the last four years. Hard to believe that the time has finally come when the orange buffoon can be replaced. I'm hoping with every hope fiber in my being that turnout is enormous and there is a blue landslide. That, in your words, is too big to manipulate. As a non-U.S. citizen, I can't make a political donation. However, I have donated to pizza to the polls so that those waiting in line to vote don't go hungry. You can do this, America. The world needs you. Love the show. And if you're ever in New Zealand, post-COVID, if that day ever comes, I can show you some great places for wine. Oh, that sounds so lovely. <gasps> oh, it sounds so nice. For, for, for an Irish uh, person named Sinead to show me wine in New Zealand sounds like the best thing that could ever happen. Yeah. Keep up the good fight. Uh, I have attached photos of my pod dogs and at, uh, at present Ginger and Wilma. Thank you and take care. Thank you, Sinead. Oh, babies. Oh, let me see. Oh, man, <gasps> Sinead. Thank you for your everything, for the two pictures, for oh. the good, for the for the pizza, for the good wishes, because we need them. Look at the dogs. These are nice. That's like portrait mode. That is a good photo. Portrait photos. Yeah, these are like professional. Oh, and then, oh, oh the dog has a fedora. This is a libertarian dog. Yep. Dog and fedora alert. Dog and fedora <laughs> alert. Love that. It's so cute. Well, we should definitely take Sinead up on that offer. I totally will. <laughs> yeah. Sinead, I'm going to get your number. Because we have a we have a, a large, a, unusually large amount of fans in New Zealand and Australia. And so before 
uh, you know, in the before times, we were planning to go out there and do some shows. So once oh. we can, we will. Yeah. Yes. I uh, love that. Okay. The next, uh, uh, well, it's a confession. Oh, cool. Uh, it's from Anonymous. She, her. Confession, I guess, she writes. My cat jumped on me while I slept this week. I picked her up, still mostly asleep, whispered, vote Biden-Harris, and put her back on the chair she likes to sleep in. I laughed myself <laughs> awake five minutes later when I realized obligatory <laughs> box cat picture included. <laughs> Vote Biden Harris. Vote Biden Harris. Look at oh that. This looks like my Bruce Willis. Is who that looks like? Yeah, it it could be Bruce Willis's like cousin. Yeah, definitely. Faux show cousin from another kitty. That's a really good confession, and it's also just like isn't everybody waking up in the middle of the night and just either panicking or whispering to their cats? Yes, guilty. I definitely guilty as charged. Wake up and talk to the cats. Uh, (laughs) Next up. From Anonymous, pronouns she and her. Good news. I am a professor in a swing state, and I teach an extremely large section of an introductory class that has a lot of freshman students in it. Normally, this class is taught in person, but this year it's online and has over 250 people. Whoa. This sounds like my when I went to Arizona State University, and we would take, like, you know, your basic sciences, geology, and... Uh, yes. In the big, like, arena seating, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Those are fun. Yeah. And for most of the students, this is their first election where they are eligible to vote. I have put voting information, i.e. how to register, how to volunteer to be a poll worker, how to request an absentee ballot, on the main page of the course webpage, so they see it every time they log in. And I've been checking in all semester if they have questions or have had problems while registering to vote. Today, I did an anonymous Zoom poll, just asked, did you vote? And the results were great. Over 63% have already voted. Holy shit! Either by mail or in person through early voting. And almost everyone else is either planning to go this weekend or wait until election day. Only 5% said they they were either not planning to vote or are not eligible to vote. I often feel helpless living in this ruby red district in my swing state where I'm surrounded by Trump signs and Confederate flags. But these students give me hope. And I and I hope that my encouragement and readily available information has helped make this new generation of voters more confident that their votes do matter and that we care about what they have to say. I'll be working as a poll worker for my precinct on Election Day. We aren't allowed to require voters to wear masks. So please keep me and my fellow poll workers across the country in your prayers on Tuesday. As we deal with either long lines of voters, aggressive poll watchers, armed militias, maskless super spreaders, or God forbid, all of the above. I'm pretty sure my tiny precinct will be pretty chill, aside from those who refuse to wear masks. But some of my students are working as poll workers in bigger towns and cities where it might get somewhat more eventful. Uh, At the beginning of the semester, I encouraged them to be poll workers due to the pandemic shortfall. And many of them volunteered and will be working Tuesday in their home communities. It would break my heart if anything happened to them. And for pet tax, attached is a picture of one of my pod sheep who is staring at the camera balefully because she doesn't like wearing her new blue lead. Look at this. Oh, my gosh. It's like a Wes Anderson sheep. It's very chic. It's very pretty. The color scheme is very, very pleasing to the eye. It's like a Wes Anderson sheep. (laughs) Isn't it? Yes, it is. We don't know the name of the sheep, but we're just going to call, we're going to call the sheep Bill Murray. Yeah, Bill Murray. Oh, Bill Murray. Look how cute. What a lovely um good news thing. And I ugh, how lucky that those students have uh her as a professor. Like what a cool, wonderfully thoughtful person to experience your freshman year with. I know. I know. Especially if you bring the sheep to class. That would be excellent. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? Okay. <laughs> Can you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and everybody, folks, this is um, 
Um, uh, Bill Murray, the sheep. Okay. Next up, we have from Ian. Hi, AG. I am one of your UK listeners. Hello. I don't quite go back to the kitchen days, but I was an avid MSW listener. Like many Brits who love America, I have followed US politics for years and saw Trump for what he was. So accurate, detailed information of what's really going on on your side of the pond is a must. Love the show and the community. I think many of us from the UK feel solidarity with you, but also 45 is a threat to the whole world. So yes, vote in numbers too big to manipulate and the whole world is counting on you, America. (laughs) pressure uh every time you ask for donations to support campaigns i suspect i'm not the only overseas listeners uh who knows that they can't and rightfully so uh even friendly nations should interfere in your elections so my good news is this i've done what i can i've just sponsored a patron this is a small thing but it's what i can do so that's the good news but here's why i'm writing to you today here's where it gets very interesting i'm i'm saying that amy is I am a pediatric surgeon, sorry, UK spelling, the A comes before the E, and researcher. I am incredibly passionate about healthcare and healthcare access. If you want someone to cut through all the GOP lies about socialized medicine, give me a call. As a rule, anyone who uses that phrase is either a liar or an idiot. So that's my day job. But today, I wasn't operating on children because my 10-month-old son was unwell. I had to take him to the ED emergency department. I mean, seriously, why, why do you call it the ER? It's far more than just one room people uh, uh, we do at the va we call it the ed it's just so you oh, know. you do mm-hmm, look do. at that he's absolutely fine thank god but here's the thing he was seen by the specialist team had an urgent ultrasound scan blood tests etc all done by brilliant colleagues of mine who i trust completely he got excellent care not because he's my son but because that's the care we give to all children we see I know this is what I do every day. I'm sure you've realized why I'm telling you this. My son got unwell last night and I realized at five this morning we needed to take him in at no point. Oh, when my son got unwell, uh, at no point did I have to worry about the cost, about how I was going to pay for it. At no point did I have to hesitate because I wouldn't be able to afford the bill. Access to healthcare is not a privilege. It is a right. I've attached a couple of pictures of Sammy, one showing him as his happy, normal self, now that he's getting better, and the other him looking grumpy because he's just had his blood done. Keep up the great work. The world is counting on you, America, but you owe it to yourselves. You owe it to yourselves to get access to healthcare for all. Yeah, 100% agreed. As a, as a veteran, I have, I go to a, a quote-unquote socialized medicine place with an emergency department instead of an ER, and uh it's I don't have to worry about the cost and it's it's so freeing and I, I everyone needs to experience that. Look at this little guy. Little munchkin. Just a little sweetheart smooshy. Oh look at his oh mm we just had his blood work done. Mm. He's not loving that, but that's okay. He won't remember it. Oh my god, he's so cute. Well I'm glad he's feeling better. Oh, I love his little um the little rose, the little, it's like the symbol for the British Labor Party, maybe? I don't oh, know. Oh, it is? I think so. Oh, gosh, you're so smart, A.G. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't even pronounce sycophant, okay? <laughs> We're having some problems here. <laughs> let me see it. Let me see. Uh, let me see if that's what it is, because I want to know now. Yeah. 
Yep. It is the Labor Party Road. It is. I think. Yeah. That's what it looks like to me. Dang, girl. You got the goods. All right. Now, let's see. Was that it? No, we have more. Oh, good. Oh, One look. More. Yes. Oh, look. Yep, I know. I know. It's too much. It's too... Oh, my God. Wait. Okay. Yeah. Go for it. Go for it. Okay. From Molly, pronouns she and her. I just wanted to thank you all for helping me cope in the midst of unbearable times. As a thank you, here's a picture of my chonk, Lucille. Looking fabulous in her Halloween finery. Someone is ready for the catwalk. Look at this <laughs> chonker. Oh. My favorite is the over the shoulder. Yeah. The mm, Yeah. <laughs> like, mm, who, me? Yeah. Oh, yes. This is my Halloween tutu. <laughs> Look. It's, the, it's very cute. It's little black outfit with an orange glittery tutu. And it says oh. fabulous on it. And oh. Fabulous. My. I think every cat is beautiful, but this cat is particularly like coy and attractive. Yes, this is a very attractive kitty. She knows it too. Lucille, Lucille, Lucille understands what she's working with and she's giving it to you. <laughs> she's serving it up. <laughs> she's so cute. And we will include all of these pictures in the newsletter, the newsletter that you get as a patron. And um, thanks also for sponsoring um, other patrons who can't swing it right now. It's just 36 bucks, and that buys a membership for a premium membership for somebody for a whole year. We've had over 500 people donate wow. memberships. Um, that's huge. And that's 10% of our entire listenership or well, our entire patronage, I should say. Yeah. That's a, that's amazing. Of patrons that we have because we have like, you know, 5,000 patrons when we got 500 uh, right. donations. That's amazing. Oh amazing so generous i know so generous such great people especially in times like these you know it's when when it can be it could really be a sacrifice to be this generous and it means so much to the people on the receiving end and probably to the people giving as well i know it feels good right so mm -hmm. thank you amy it's been wonderful Thank you. Oh, the next time I talk to you. I mean, that's not true. I'm going to be texting you. But the next time I talk to you in public on this platform. Uh -huh. This is our final Friday pre-election. Final Friday pre-election. I'm hoping that by next Friday, we are all well rested <sighs> and happy. Mm. I mean, I'm just envisioning a future in which we all have brushed our hair and our teeth, <laughs> taken a shower and feel like human beings for the first time in five years gonna be amazing everybody vote vote yes. now vote this instant today go do it today today's the best day yesterday was the best day today's the second best day tomorrow's the third best day and don't drop it in the mail go and hand drop it off at either yes. your registrar's office or a, a ballot drop box or wherever there's somewhere in person yes for yes. sure yes awesome all right everybody thank you any final thoughts amy before we before we get out of here um i would just say I know I tweeted something today where I was like, is anybody having like a hard time just doing anything but surviving? And so many people wrote back. And I, I really believe that we're all feeling the same amount of like fatigue and stress and anxiety. And there is something a little bit comforting to know that like you're not the only one that's struggling to like get out of bed or, or you know, make the bed or even brush your teeth or put on a, you know, clean pair of pants on. Like people are, we're all kind of going through this and we can get through it together. So let's just all band together with the collective positivity and make it to post-election Tuesday. Yes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not wearing pants right now. So, you know. <laughs> Who needs them? It's a no pants party, really. Yeah. 
Uh, excellent. Thank you so much, Amy. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. It's going to be so awesome. Yes, but I'll text you a million times before that. I know. I, yeah, we'll definitely be doing that. And uh, of course, we're having a live election night event. Uh, and we have so many great guests. Andy McCabe's going to pop in, Sam Vinograd, mm. Natasha Bertrand, uh, Frank Figluzzi. Um, Rachel Vindman is going to stop by. Uh, it's going to be so, so fun. Oh, my gosh. What a lineup. Wait, am I still invited or or is it is it because I feel like now you've got the A-listers. Like, I don't even know what I could bring to the table. Maybe some jokes. You are totally invited to pop in. You're totally invited okay. to pop in. And- I'll, 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 maybe I'll bring some jokes and like a classic cocktail recipe for just to make it worth everybody's <laughs> while. Awesome. Yeah. Come in. Show us how <laughs> to make a cocktail because we're doing like five minute bits with the uh, with all these amazing, amazing people. And I'll, I'll be Fantastic. co-hosted with Kelly from Two Broads Talking Politics and Jen from Electorette. So it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. And we're just going to sit around and absorb each other's awesomeness. And I'm really excited about it. <laughs> all right, everybody, until uh, until Monday, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health. I've been AG. And I've been Amy Carrero. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by A.G. and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by A.G., Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com. <laughs>